Welcome to Open Sources Guelph here on CFRU 93.3 FM, CFRU.ca, Guelph Campus and Community Radio. I'm Adam A. Donaldson of Guelph Politico, and joining me is... Scotty Hertz taking a respite from the heat down in the bunker. I'm actually very glad of the bunker these days, because, boy, I was absolutely lathered up this week. Yeah, it's not much better up here on Snake Mountain, where yeah. all the all the fans are off to record the show. So the, the perils of a perils of a so-called essential worker out in out in the world. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's not so great being non-essential either. Yes. True. Uh, anyway, uh, well, the the heat should be over soon until it's back, and uh, <laughs> and then that's summer in Canada. So. Open Source is a CFRU's political and current affairs discussion show, and you can find us here every Thursday at 5 p.m. as we talk about the latest news items from Guelph, Ontario, Canada, and around the world. And we sometimes interview local newsmakers and politicians, which this week will be the Ontario Secondary School Teachers Federation President, Harvey Bischoff. And we will talk about the last year of uh, school and the effects on the teachers by uh, COVID and what he would like to see the Minister of Education say and do right now, and uh, I'll tell you this, it wasn't announcing a new math curriculum today. Yikes. Uh, yeah, so uh, <laughs> that, stand by for that. Uh, that's in the bottom of the hour. Before that, we're going to talk about the eternal debate about what best vax is best for you, and whether or not it's okay to get different doses for a second shot as we wait for that feedback. But first... Uh, residential schools still in the news. Um, there was a bit of news on Wednesday that the, the federal government announced that it's extending eligibility for the 2006 Indian Residential School settle- Settlement Agreement uh, to those who attended residential schools in the day but uh, went home at night. So the, not quite the day schools, um, but I guess the kids that kind of fell in between, they went to residential schools, but they didn't live there. So that is like sort of one piece of good news. Also, if you don't like effigies of um, people whom universities were named after, it was a good week for you because Edgerton Ryerson is down and apparently down for good, uh, according to Ryerson University, as they're thinking everything, including their name. And the president's tweet on the weekend was, I guess it wasn't supposed to be funny, but it was after <laughs> seeing it on the feeds was, and the statue will not be replaced. <laughs> that's, so that's what it took, pulling it down on a on a Saturday night, I guess in the middle of a pandemic, I don't know, but they're just like, yeah. I mean, they probably did uh, Ryerson a favor because they won't have to pay for its removal. They just you know took it down, chopped it up, threw it into the harbor, and then rescued the head. And I think the head ended up down in, in Caledonia on a pike. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, this the Endless symbolism there. And actually, there was one picture of a reported to be a residential school survivor standing there with with this head. This is powerful stuff. Yes, indeed, a lot uh, has happened this week, particularly as you mentioned the lawsuit. Isn't that amazing? I fought that thing for years. And now, (laughs) now all of a sudden, within a week of Mm -hmm. everything that happened, uh, or a little bit more than that, uh, we're we're, we're just going to pay up. We're just going to do it. So maybe they're actually listening to people and saying, why do you? Why don't you just stop doing this and do this? Uh, considering that I think the amount that was mentioned for the day school survivors was $10,000, which doesn't sound like a lot, but I guess it's better that this is being settled now rather than just continuously paying lawyers and continuously paying into litigation. It's pushing, it's millions of dollars the government has spent and I think is still spending on some lawsuits fighting yeah. residential school survivors. Just stop. Um, 
in a little bit of other news, I, I thought this was interesting that on the weekend, a search began in a place called Shubenacadie, which is in Nova Scotia. Mm-hmm. There was a uh, residential school there that had, I th- it sounded like they had put out a bit of an appeal. Um, it's a Mi'kmaq area and one of the, it's the same, uh, I think it's Spakenocti. Please forgive any pronunciations. We do try really hard. <laughs> um, it's the same community that's involved in the fisheries battle, the yeah. lobster fishery battle. And uh, a archaeologist who is into geophysics from St. Mary's University and a, and a specialist in, in finding unmarked graves stepped up in collaboration with the museum down there. He said, yep, we'll, we'll just scan this. I'm not even sure if it's, I think it was, I guess you don't call it pro bono when it's not law, but they're just like, yeah, yeah we'll just do that. So uh, that's pretty impressive as well. I think there was an appeal put out by the, by the uh, local Mi'kmaq. Um, mm-hmm. And it, so- it sounds like there will be more of that, too. I'm sure that this person will be in demand, and it's just a matter of time. Well, obviously, this one happened right away, but the search, deeper search for answers, or lots of questions left unanswered, is beginning in earnest and will probably just accelerate from now on. Supposedly, I guess the government is making some money available for this, but they just said, no, we're just, we're just going to do it. Because that's what it took it in, in, uh, in Kamloops as well. The yeah. band was just doing it. Yeah, that's what it takes, or nothing will happen, as we've seen. Right, and there's something between eleven. Like they suspect, like out there, there is eleven thousand to fifteen thousand missing kids. So, I mean, if if this becomes a thing where everybody's digging up everywhere, it's going to become like one of these kind of weekly things. It's like this week we found so, so many kids at this residential school, and this week we found so many kids at this residential school. So, I mean, it's. <sighs> perhaps it's understandable from a i guess <laughs> i guess a you know unrelentingly bad news point of view that you know once people start digging I mean, they're going to find things and i think everyone can agree that um you know once you know these investigations start happening things will be uncovered um and indeed the case in Kamloops you know basically started as like you know matters of I mean, almost basically urban legends where people are saying, like, no, 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 there are kids buried on this property. And everyone's like, oh, come on, how could there be like a mass grave of, you know, dead kids? And it turns out, oh, yeah, there is. Um, the other thing with the federal government is, and, and this was like, there was an NDP motion on Tuesday, I want to say, where it's just like, hey, you know, liberals, maybe stop fighting residential schools uh, in court. And it, you know, it it was a non-binding motion, so it passed 271 to zero, uh, with every liberal, I think every liberal in cabinet abstaining. But I mean, it, it just like the liberal government is just so hot and cold. It's like one day they're abstaining, and the next day they're you know, it, it, I, like I watched the announcement live. It was this like florid announcement with Carolyn Bennett holding court. It's just like like this. Was she holding for- a feather by any chance? Is that <laughs> I I don't remember, but seems to be a popular move. It's just, you know, it's like, yeah, we did it, everyone. You know, we're, 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 we're taking this one court case out of court and we settled it. So, like, there's your reconciliation. It just, it has this, like, pseudo veneer of, you know, uh, sunny ways that some people still in the liberal cabinet think they can whip out and, you know, whammy people with. And it just, it felt so disingenuous, too, because, I mean, this is probably one of the most minor of of the the legal cases so it's you know way to thanks for throwing us a bone i guess so 
Yeah, and it's there seems to be quite a bit of buck passing going on currently between well the Catholic Church. Cardinal Collins was on ex of golf now of Toronto. Mm-hmm. Uh, seemed almost indignant that oh how can the prime minister be saying this this you know the, yeah. the records are there you can find them uh, particular to Kamloops but it, it would seem that somebody is or has been for a while going through the records and as we know a lot of stuff tends to go missing and a lot of things happen off the record at places uh, like the Kamloops Residential School and probably I would I would hazard a guess all of them to some degree right so the mm-hmm. Uh, the government's saying Catholic Church apologize. Catholic Church is saying I can't believe that Trudeau and company are doing this, which is, this is typical stuff. And they, I th- I do remember a comment about not playing politics about it. like do it, th- that exact back and forth dialogue uh, is not only tone deaf but it is it's completely pay- playing politics. And I also fully appreciate the people getting called out on this. Mostly on Twitter, I saw on the weekend, but in other places too. Uh, Rex Murphy, mm-hmm. uh, and of course Jason Kenny doing his you know typical settler politician thing about <gasps> cancel yes. culture. They yes. really, really need to stop playing the cancel culture card on this. I mean, 100%. nothing like <laughs> O'Toole learned. O'Toole has stopped doing it, and probably will for for this foreseeable. But these other clowns. You just have to stop. You need to find some other point to make because it's just not working. I'm so glad you mentioned that because it, that was like on Sunday or Monday, and it might as well have been like a hundred years ago. But yeah. like when I heard Kay, when I heard Kenny say that, I was like, "I'm sorry, did you just use the words cancel culture about a group who literally had their culture canceled, like their culture, yeah, their language, that was the their religion was taken away, and you're kidding us, Huffy, about cancel culture? It's like, do you like? I, I had a like a uh, like a flash, like Arrested Development, with like Michael Blue saying, like, here, take this tape recorder and record yourself and see how you sound. <laughs> well, yeah, exactly. But it's that that is the problem with guys like Kenny. Like it's they seem to to go along this line and O'Toole had been doing it for a while. Like I said, he has completely backtracked and probably won't say anything for a while about how we are going to forget about history. If we tear down the Ryerson statue or the John A statue, right? It's like, we will forget about history. It's like, dude, that's, that is absolutely not how it works. Uh, Yeah. I I mean, mean, if anything history is being made and you, you you put, they put a lot of weight on these statues and, and in some ways, you know they do symbolize certain things, but they're, it's it's not the be all and end all. But to to say that oh well, if you do this, then people forget. They won't forget. There are thousands and thousands of people out there that are remembering every day how horrible this was, and people like Ryerson. Now Ryerson, I'm not giving the guy any credit. He was he was the architect of this. He was gone before the residential school system came about. Right? Mm-hmm. Believe me, I'm not being an apologist for the guy. But if you're the root document. And you're being celebrated as a person, as an educator or whatever. Like that is just not, it's not on. And it yeah. has to change. And it will change. And I, you know, you can bet. I don't know if it'll be this year, but soon enough, X University, as they're calling it now, will no longer uh, be Ryerson. I don't know what the heck they're going to call it, but it's definitely not going to be Ryerson. Because the names of these things change all the time. Mm. There was the Ontario Agricultural College, and then it became University of Guelph. It's not difficult, right? Well, part of this, too, is um, 
Oh, I almost forgot what I was going to say there. Sorry. But <laughs> no, it's up. all right. <laughs> no, I, the, what I was going to say is um, at the end of the day, like every Canadian history book is going to have John A. MacDonald in it. Uh, like you're, we're not going to like start editing out the books and saying like, oh, the first prime minister of Canada was Mr. X. Um, you know, it, it's yeah. – that's that's ludicrous. I mean, taking down a statue is not ludicrous. Statues get taken down all the all the time, um, with very few exceptions. I I would think that you know statues aren't really meant to last. Um, would you mind if I read you a bit of this statement from the Ryerson Conservative Club? Oh, do tell. I think you'll enjoy it. Uh, yesterday on the seventy seventh anniversary of D Day. One of our nation's most important and solemn days. I mean, when was the last time you celebrated D-Day? But anyway, the Edgerton-Ryerson statue that has stood over 132 years was toppled by Marxist vandals. <laughs> the criminals then beheaded the statue and threw it threw its head in Lake Ontario so as to make sure that Edgerton-Ryerson's legacy can never be revived. I'm going to skip ahead to the last paragraph because this is where it gets really thirsty. Uh, conservatives in this province and across the country have shown a breathtaking level of cowardice when it comes to standing up for the truth and defending Canadian history and culture. We know how conservatives feel about these issues. Aaron O'Toole knows the truth about Edgerton Ryerson. He said it to our faces during an event we held with him less than a year ago. But in a manner that is utterly typical of Tory leaders in this country, the second he felt any pushback from left-wing media outlets like Press Progress, he made a groveling and embarrassing apology and abandoned us and his beliefs for the sake of political expediency. So there's two things going on here. Either one, uh, you know, it, it's like these guys are saying where, you know, Aaron O'Toole's doing just something disingenuous for the sake of politics, or, you know, he perhaps has really evolved on the matter from, I guess, a few months ago when he said, like, hey, residential schools were like, a, you know, they were about education in the beginning. Um, I mean, either way, this is something that is probably not going to help him in an election when an election comes. No, and the more they they fight amongst themselves, then the more that uh, uh, it's going to fall apart for them, right? But that that kind of tone, to me, mm. as one of the dumb lefty university radicals that they talk that O'Toole also slammed in that exact same discussion, uh, <laughs> to me, and I'm not a Marxist, I've said this before, but to me that that kind of language leads to uh a certain type of extremism yeah or or can do right it's 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 a reflection of that silo that they're in right by all means take on the leaders of your parties or whatever but the way that's worded i'm sure the chunky left out is very interesting too and i'll probably if you can send me a copy of that i'll definitely read up on it yeah but uh, <laughs> as as we've seen in other parts of ontario recently uh from the weekend that yeah. uh extremism is on the rise yeah, and I was or gonna, has never actually I never actually left the, the, right. the stories I remember hearing of, and this was people point to Western University as an example of places where they go in London. There was an article a few years back, and you can Google it. Somebody had written about their entire racist experience at Western University for the whole time that they were there. Were never mm -hmm. come as a black person. So right. by, extension, by extension, and they didn't specifically mean the university, they meant the town of London. Now, as you've seen by the outpouring that happened on the weekend, um, 
you know, there it's not it, it isn't everyone, but there is definitely something going on down there. Right, and I forgot to look up his name, but the um, the accused? The, the, no, no, uh, I'm, I'm thinking about the no, no. I was thinking about the statement um, from the uh, progressive, not the progressive conservative candidate, the 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 conservative candidate, yeah, um, who posted this like really, really Jeff Bennett. Okay, I I just yep. googled him. Um, this statement he put out about how like volunteers for his campaign would come up to him and go and like, Oh, thank goodness. It's you meaning thank goodness. You're not the Muslim guy who ran last time, the first generation Muslim guy who ran last time. And he would get it on the doors too. And I mean, to Jeff Bennett's credit, it was a very like hard yeah, that, statement yeah. where, you know, he looked in the mirror and said like, I should have told that volunteer to get out that I don't want him on the campaign, but I didn't. And it's, it's just like, well, I mean, that's... He found his heart. I, I mean, right. Three, three sizes, yeah. <laughs> but I mean, that, I mean, that's the same kind of thing you get from the, the Ryerson Conservative Club. It's essentially yep. the same thing. It's like, brown, no thank you. And I mean, I don't expect everyone who thinks that way to become a guy who gets behind the wheel of his pickup truck and run over a family of five and mount the curb to do it. But it's the point of view that tells those people it's okay. You're the one who acts when no one else does, as alluded to in that Ryerson Conservative Club statement. And it came out today, supposedly, that this the, the person that ran over the family mm -hmm. rips off the jacket and has a swastika on his shirt, right? So uh, no find, a, find, find, a, find a Nazi statue in Germany. Yeah. Find a Nazi statue in Austria. You're more likely to find one in the backwoods out here <laughs> or a flag of some kind or some ridiculous, sorry, almost dropped a bomb there. Um, <laughs> but that re realistically, that's where you're going to find that stuff now. Cause you won't, I mean, and they do, I'm, I'm believe me, I'm not that naive to think that fascists don't still exist in Germany, but you're not going to go to the, a university that's called uh, Joseph Goebbels U because you know, they right. have gotten rid of that for good reason. And this is why you see Ryerson being pulled down. That's why you see John A. with the red on his face. The root is the same. Your history is your history. Even if even if your founders were terrible people, that is your history and you need to recognize it. But putting up symbols of it, of any kind, is 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 celebrating it, right? You only mm -hmm. do the flags and statues that are for for, for celebration, mm -hmm. generally, right? Right, you're like this is our team. It's like no, no. It's the, you'll be challenged continuously on that until forever. So well, you know, in Germany, you need if you're like shooting a, a historical movie involving Nazis, you need like written permission from three different ministries to to put up a swastika. But, Do you remember I mean, when they had the swastikas in the downtown there and here, and people lost their minds? Like yeah, yeah. Well, I can't remember the film. I'm sure you've seen it. But. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, but that's I mean, where it you belongs. Know, it, that, but again, that's curated history rather than just sort of like just sort of there. So it right, I'm just saying, you know, it was only a few months ago somebody wearing a sweatshirt that said Camp Auschwitz was running around the U.S. Capitol like he owned the place. So it's you know, <laughs> context changes the thing. Better not uh, come to me. <clears throat> <laughs> I don't think he's going anywhere for a while. Uh, we're gonna talk about a, a topic that started on Scotty Hertz's Facebook page, actually, um, which is uh, to get a second 
di- a different second dose or to not get a second uh, a different second dose. So, Scotty, where did you land on on the great debate? On well, this debate? see, it's it's still super complicated because information <laughs> is coming in continuously. I just want to say at the top though that this this topic also comes from a place of privilege because one of the things that I, I mm-hmm. discovered this week is that eighty percent of the globe have not had a first dose. So I just kind of put that in a little bit of perspective. It's like, yeah. and the comment was, well, if the world isn't getting vaccinated, then, you know, we're still going to have a problem. The fight right now here in Ontario, particularly in another places, UK is the Delta variant, the one that mm-hmm. originated in India. It's like, well, how do we fight that? It's like you speed up uh, getting your doses. So for those of us in the, uh, on team AstraZeneca, which includes you, <laughs> And uh, most of Gen X, we've been left kind of hanging a bit and getting uh, contradictory information, I would say, because, you know, the government website will say one thing. It's like, okay, get AstraZeneca, and then you have to wait 12 weeks for your second AstraZeneca dose, and that's Mm. fine. Just sign up at the pharmacy. Uh, In a place like BC, you can't sign up at the pharmacy if you had AstraZeneca. You got to go through, I think you have to go through the health department. Mm. It has been suggested by... Um, medical professionals, let's say, that uh, the dose, your second dose, if you had AstraZeneca first, if it's going to be an mRNA and it's looking that way in Ontario, it's almost looking like what they've done in Norway where they're not, they're just not going to bother with the second dose of AstraZeneca. It's too much of a pain. Although they're saying that we should be able to get it. Uh, there's been some talk that the second mRNA dose could be moved back. The 12 weeks is optimum for two doses of AstraZeneca they have seen. Now, there's a study uh, coming out in a week, supposedly. This is a week or two from the UK, a larger study mm-hmm. that talks about second dose being Pfizer, AstraZeneca, if your first, or sorry, so Pfizer or Moderna, mm-hmm. if your first <laughs> dose was AstraZeneca. Those numbers aren't out yet. But it's obviously leading to a lot of confusion because I've been hearing anecdotal stuff of people that I know within our range uh, a couple of them are traveling from Mississauga to Acton for their second shot, which is out of district, and supposedly this is all legit. I know some people from here that are going to Hamilton for a shot. Mm-hmm. So they're trying to put these parameters on it, but it's shaping up to be a bit of a, a free-for-all, really. Mm-hmm. And there was a, yeah, a couple of stories I read today about uh, like pharmacists saying like they're just being inundated with calls about people trying to get their second shot to the point where they have to like turn the phones off so that they can focus on the work of actually giving out shots. So, I mean, that that's kind of anecdotal because they talked to a couple of different pharmacists, but at the same time, like the, the accelerated timeline, which on the one hand, yeah, should be taken as good news and understandably so. But on the other hand, it seems to be creating a lot of confusion in the community because there is still this open question for a lot of people who got AstraZeneca and the current advice from NASI, the the people who advise about um, about vaccines, is that you know if you got Pfizer or Moderna or whatever, you, that should be your next shot. You should get the exact same dose mm-hmm. for your second shot. And indeed, for in the case of AstraZeneca, people who get uh, the second dose, there are um, the chance of getting a complication like VITT is actually lesser. But 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 but. A lot of people are assuming that this again because people are making recommendations where there's the like the firm data has not like quite been released. The 
like it's it's like the, there are positive indications, but I mean that's the kind of the same thing as like looking at your um, your weather app on your phone and seeing there's a thirty percent chance of rain tomorrow, and saying there are positive indications that it's going to be sunny all day. It's like you mm-hmm. can make that assumption, but it still might rain, and it's it's kind of the same thing. It's like we're assuming it, it'd be cool to get an mRNA vaccine if you've already gotten an AstraZeneca shot, but we still haven't gotten that data, and that. I think is where a lot of the confusion lies. We are we've become so desperate, and like a lot of this too is looking to south of the border and seeing them opening mm-hmm. up and going to football. Not football because that's not going on right now, but baseball games and things and full stadiums and movie theaters and all that. And and to think, oh, like we have to get there fast. And it's yeah. I I think it, it, I think the question and why you asked it, I think, is legitimately concerning. Is like, are we? doing the due diligence on science and and i hate talking like this because it sounds like crazy conspiracy stuff but i think it's valid that you know are we rushing things because we're trying to outrace a a fourth wave and get back to normal more quickly i think that is uh, a legitimate uh concern yeah there there does seem to be a bit of this a race there's two several races going on I suppose one is against the Delta variant because it's when you only have one shot of AstraZeneca or one shot of anything for that matter one shot of the mRNAs is very good against uh, the Delta variant Uh, one shot of AstraZeneca not so hot Mm -hmm. two shots of any mRNA mRNA is very very good against everything right Mm -hmm. AstraZeneca supposedly somewhere in the 70s maybe pushing 80 but this is the thing with AstraZeneca for the first and MNRA for the second, the the language is, well, it, it creates a very strong immune response. But I think we're so used to hearing numbers now, like, well, is it 90? Is it, mm. a, is it 99? Is it is it a 70? <laughs> like, what is it, right? Now, those those numbers, I know any expert will say that those those percentages are not, not it's not a guarantee, right? It's not as if your statistical odds are 70% that you will get it or won't get it. It's, it's more like if you do get it, you're exposed to it. You either won't get it or your response is so great that you won't end up in the hospital. You won't end up in the the intubated in the emergency ward. Right. But that's, Mm -hmm. so it may be a case of us, us meaning the AstraZeneca gang waiting another couple (laughs) of weeks for this, this more thorough UK study. Um, right. I will point people to a couple of things that are out there that I found that I thought were excellent. There's there's a page, a two-pager put together by experts that's at Uni- University of Waterloo. So if you go UO Waterloo, if you put in UO Waterloo and COVID to Google, you will find this paper. And it does an absolute fantastic job of of breaking down what exactly is going on. Because the AstraZeneca people, although we took it for having a bit of a limited choice, it seems that we might have the most flexibility in terms of uh, you know, the weight and the gap and and whatever. The problem is the 12-week wait because if if the variant is indeed on the rise. And um, I would also mention Dr. Zadlik on um, local doctor. Obviously, mm. people do know her, well-renowned in town on Facebook. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you get a chance to follow her, you should because she does an excellent job of breaking down for the lay person what is going on. And then that's the thing too. It's, it's really, the breakdown is great. It's still really detailed though. Right. Mm-hmm. You know, we long for the days where they just kind of showed up and gave you a jab and then you went away. Right. But now it's like, there's homework to do, right. <laughs> Should there be homework to do with, with something like this? But mm-hmm. I, 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 you know, there is obviously, cause there's what, is it 800,000 or 900,000 people in Ontario that got the shot? Yeah. 
And all the professionals will say it was a good thing to do. It was an excellent yeah. thing to do. No one should regret getting it. No. But the regrets come in in the in part two. It's like, well, what do I do now? <laughs> and that, you know, this is the great burning question. So. And I will say too that you know, we're rushing to get vaccinated, but that's not the only way to um, keep case counts from rising. Like, still wear your mask, still physically distant, and I think that's an important thing to remember as we go into this weekend where stuff is reopening again. It's not a mask-free palooza anymore. It's you know, we still have to do, I guess, do those old-fashioned COVID <laughs> a prevention measures. So, don't let your guard down. Don't let your guard down. We are going to let our guards down, though, because we're going to play some music and then come right back with our interview with Harvey Bischoff. You're listening to Open Sources Guelph here on CFRU 93.3 FM, CFRU.ca, Guelph Campus and Community Radio. And that was our Royal Cat Records pick of the week. Royal Cat Records, 21 McDonnell, the little big record shop in our downtown. And they may actually be open. Contact them to find out. I don't know. Everything changes tomorrow. Well, they'll be open tomorrow, yeah. No, they'll, I'm, I'm all, not sure how open, but... Uh, so 50%. I can, I can finally stop saying, pick up only. Well, you can still pick stuff up, but it's it's because it's fifteen percent capacity, and it's a pretty small place. So that probably means like one and a half people. So you get the whole place to yourself. It sounds amazing, at least to me. Dreams can come true. Uh, the band the was song? Block Parent from <laughs> Cambridge. The album is called Sick Year, Bro, Sick and that year, song bro. was Take Part or Die. We weren't nice. trying to be actively morbid. That's actually on our charts this week. So <laughs> coming in on the CFIU charts this week is Block Parent. <laughs> if That'll it's morbid, it's your DJing fault. A show with all vinyl, yeah. right? Yeah, no. Well, the, that that keeps getting pushed back. Um, <laughs> where are we going to talk about next? Oh yeah, Harvey Bischoff. <laughs> so Harvey Excuse Bischoff me. is <laughs> the outgoing president of the OSSTF. He's retiring this year. Um, that's the Ontario Secondary School Teachers Federation. So he represents high school students and other education workers. And uh, yeah, he is not Doug Ford or Stephen Lecce's best friend. But uh, we will let him explain all that as we talk about uh, the COVID year and how it's affected teachers and uh, what schools need right now to get ready for what will hopefully be a COVID-free fall. So I'm just going to reach over to the old cassette recorder and hit play on that right now. So Harvey Bischoff, thank you so much for joining me today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. I guess uh, quickly, just if you can sum up, you know, how teachers are feeling coming to the end of the school year, whether it's been, I mean, we thought the 2019, 2020 school year had a lot of drama, this uh, almost equal or eclipsed the drama of, um, 
you know, on the job action from the year before. So just, you know, as, as we're coming to the end of the school year, you know, your members, what are they thinking? What are they, you know, looking back on the experiences of this past year? What's on top of their minds? Yeah. I mean, I, the one word that I would use to sum it up for teachers and other education workers, both, uh, cause I, I represent, uh, represent uh, a broad spectrum of education workers, uh, across the publicly funded education systems in Ontario. Um, but the single word I'd probably use at this point is exhaustion. Um, they are, they are wrung out. Um, you know, the, the rapid unexpected shift to online learning in March of last year was one thing, but the, the constant changes, the back and forth, the government that doesn't seem to plan more than five minutes ahead, um, and knee jerk responses, um, Trying to adjust to to uh, you know, repeated sessions of uh, of remote learning as schools opened and closed again, um, trying to reach kids who were sometimes hard to reach uh, uh, as this pandemic exacerbated the gaps uh, in you know in equity for for students. Um, all of those things have left uh, educators truly, truly. Um, you know, I, I think there's there's really nothing left in the tank having said that too, and it's kind of hard to get the hard numbers and hard data about this, but I mean, that, that impact, that exhaustion is translating into uh, like job, like not job issues, but like job, like perhaps greater than normal job vacancies. Like teachers are just tapped out and uh, are, are, you know, taking their leave um, because, you know, who knows where you might be next month and, <laughs> it, it's just, yeah. I mean, it, it, the, the problems are compounding each other is what I'm trying to get at. Yeah, absolutely. And, and so we've seen um, a pretty striking rise in longer term absences uh, in, in long term disability claims. Um, and these are um, these are signs of, um, of stress, anxiety, worsening mental health. Um, and, and uh, like I said, I mean, the, the movement to long-term disability has been, has been really, it's distressing to see that. Um, it, it tells you again that, that people are at the end of their, their rope. Um, there's been some work done um, and, and more will continue in terms of assessing educators' mental health over the course of the pandemic. Um, Canadian Teachers Federation did a survey back uh, at the start of the school year and then again in November and the, the decline in, in mental health over that period of time was was pretty staggering. Um, others have been doing that work and and I've heard um, at, you know from at least one researcher who said uh, never seen never seen a workplace this bad this this toxic with stress and anxiety. And I guess along with that too like the focus when we talk about education and, and COVID and opening, reopening, that's kind of been the focus is like, is, is it going to be in-person school this month or is it going to be remote learning? Has there been any discussion with the ministry about like sort of these long-term consequences and, and how, wh whether it's, you know, teachers who are, you know, punching out permanently, whether it's teachers who are, you know, still feel enthusiastic about the job, but are going to need like long-term supports, like are, are, is the Ministry of Education thinking about the future in, in your experience? No. 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 I mean, I can explain. I had a feeling it. that was a softball, but yeah. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm, I'm telling you, it is, it is uh, distressing in the extreme 
um, that, you know, it goes back to what I was saying before. This is a ministry that plans things, uh, you know, five minutes in advance. Um, this is a government where the premier talks to Arthur, you know, a 10 year old that he referenced in his uh, in, a, in a press conference and, and no harm to Arthur, for heaven's sake, he's 10. The premier uh, is the one who ought to be thinking things through and not on the fly coming up with a plan for every grade graduation that's meant to be implemented over over a matter of weeks. Those are just, you know, I, I reference those things as just kind of examples of the way this government think ahead, think, doesn't think ahead. But there's been no talk about a couple of things um, that that uh, arise from your question. There has been no talk about the long-term effects on educators and how to support them. Um, and and you know uh, there has been there's been no talk about how do we remediate the effects that kids have suffered over the last year. This has been traumatic for a lot of kids. It, it's um, you know kids who who don't have households. Um, where it's easy to find a quiet place to work, where they have the, the technical um, measures that they need, where they don't have access to high speed, um, all of those, all of those things. Um, I've heard, I've heard my members tell me that they've been able to deliver about 60% of the, of the curriculum over the course of the year, just because, or at least during periods of, of, uh, you know, in closure to in-person learning. Um, and so how are we going to how are we going to remediate that? What are we going to do for those kids who um, approach the system already marginalized and were further marginalized by the effects of the pandemic? Um, and I've heard, you know, it's it's June. We're going to be reopening in September. And I've heard nothing from the ministry. There have been repeated calls from all kinds of education stakeholders. Let's strike a table of, of you know, uh, educators, of, of parent groups, of other people who have an interest in education. Let's strike a table, let's get together and let's let's begin, for heaven's sake, finally to plan for the long-term implications and to remediate um, what kids have suffered. And I've heard virtually nothing from this ministry. Um, of course, I don't get to speak with the ministry myself. There is simply no discourse between me and the political wing of the ministry, the minister. I have I have sent him formal letters. I have uh, informally through other channels requested meetings. Last time I spoke to the minister was July of last year for 15 minutes on the phone. Um, he simply will not speak with me. Um, so we, you know, we have some channels through through staff and, and the bureaucracy. But the fact that the political wing has shut itself off entirely to, to conversation with what I represent, which is the voice of frontline workers is, is inexcusable. I'm gonna put a pin in that and circle back around, but just to, to, to talk about the, the sort of the curriculum picture, what you're essentially saying is that there are like students who are gonna be going back to, I mean, at this point we're presuming there's gonna be in-person, uh, almost near universal in-person learning in the fall. They're gonna be going back to start like say grade 11 but having not completed, you know, 40% of the grade 10 curriculum. So they're already a step back. I mean, it's, it's almost like they're essentially repeating the 10th grade to an extent. Yeah, except it won't be, of course. Right. And so if you're into the grade 11, you know, science, math, English, and, and haven't gotten the foundations in grade 10 that you, that, you know, you normally would have, well, now, now we've got an issue to address and it's not, clearly uh, any fault of, of the, the kids, any fault of the students, um, but they need 
to they need to be supported. There, there needs to be massive system-wide uh, consideration of that uh, impact, and we just haven't seen it. Uh, I would just like to add for the people who are listening, uh, we're recording Wednesday morning. There's supposed to be a Minister of Education announcement uh, around the noon hour. So we will see what that's about. And I, I won't, given your previous comments, I won't ask you if you have any clue. So, <laughs> but uh... I'm, I'm told it's about the release of the new math curriculum. Okay. Uh, which again, you know, this is not the time to launch a new curriculum into the system. And it's not the time to launch it uh, in, in June. Uh, when you know it's meant to be delivered in September. That's no way to do a curriculum rollout that doesn't provide anything like the proper professional development time that's required to make a curriculum rollout successful. So it's just more, yeah, uh, you know, more of the same. Let me ask you this. At this rate, do you think, um, I mean, there's been rumblings about cabinet shuffle. Uh, do you think you'll be dealing with Stephen Lecce in September? Um, I would say, I mean, this, this is, you know, crystal ball gazing, um, yeah. but you know, I'll do my best. Um, if I were a betting man and playing the odds, I, I don't expect to see, uh, to see Minister Lecce retain that portfolio. Um, we've, you know, we've certainly heard the rumors that he is, uh, desperate himself for an exit, uh, from the portfolio. Um, and, uh, and I, I mean, I, I think a shuffle, um, you know, some sometimes sort of a year out from election is is almost inevitable, and and I think um, we will be looking at a new minister fairly soon. Okay, coming back around to the relationship between the government and the teachers' unions, which you alluded to, and I'm going to ask you the response to this because I remember a couple of months ago there was a press conference and um, it was about the reopening strategy and, and somebody threw a softball to Doug Ford about the friction with the teachers union and how the plan didn't address that and Doug Ford said something to the effect of well the government never gets no matter who the government is they never get along with teachers um, and it kind of paints the teachers unions as sort of a, a contrarian mass who no one can get along with, no matter their political affiliation. I mean, how did you respond when you heard Doug Ford say that after everything? So this is a this is a a well worn political uh, talking point, um, and I've said before. Look, it's true. We we have fought with governments of every stripe. Uh, back in the '90s, we fought with the NDP. Why? Because they legislatively reopened legal contracts and enforced and and. Uh, and uh, uh, you know, pay freezes and pay losses on us. They didn't. They didn't negotiate new contracts. They 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 ripped up the ones that we had legally that we had legally signed. You know, with the Liberals, we had a good relationship from 2003 to 2012, um, when again they legislatively interfered with bargaining. And when I say that, I say that with the support of the judge who found that in fact. Um, Bill 115 was legislative overreach, did violate my members' charter rights, uh, and was entirely inappropriate. And with the Ford government, I can tell you, we tried talking to them uh, at the beginning. Um, and I had the premier, I mean, I hadn't, you know, I wasn't talking about him publicly. He was calling me a thug in the legislature. Um, and, uh, you know, I mean, has has referenced me personally uh, more than once. Um because he likes a foil, because he likes a fight. And then remember what happened. They came out with a plan to slash the jobs of 25%, fully a quarter of Ontario's high school teachers. 
along with imposing the four mandatory e-learning credits on students, which nobody uh, thought was a good idea other than um, I have to believe the uh, ed tech companies who are circling in the background ready to, to make money off of this. Um, so, you know, to claim that you know, we, we didn't launch a sneak attack on this government, they looked to, to gut the, the teaching force in Ontario. Who would that be good for? Would that, would, would, you know, kids uh, benefit from having 25% fewer teachers and thousands fewer support staff in Ontario schools? It's absurd. And so, so he can say we fought with them, but I mean, they didn't just throw the first punch. They, they, they fired the first missile. And one could argue sort of, you know, the effects of COVID have sort of been a living lab where a lot of those suggestions have been tested. I mean, you, the, you know, kids learning at home in front of their computer. I mean, you're essentially having less teachers and less teaching time. You know, we see the limits of virtual learning and the impact on kids that way. It's, it's sort of been able to crystallize a lot of the issues that, that you and the other teachers unions were talking about during those fights. Yeah, I mean, look, we we already know uh, we 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 know we know the work, we know the profession, we know students, and so we we predict quite easily how students would react to online learning. And now, exactly as you say, we had this um, this imposed uh, experiment, uh, and we saw exactly what we expected. Um, for the vast vast majority of students, there is no substitute for the in person support of of the educators they work with. Um, you know, I, I don't know who could be surprised by that. If you've ever taught a child or raised a child, to me, that was, that was you know, um, it was highly predictable. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to ask you a question that I think I know the answer to. Do you think those lessons um, have stuck in any way, shape or form to the current provincial government? They have stuck with parents. They have stuck with students and educators. I'm not seeing the evidence they've stuck with this government. Um, look, we saw a document and it's, it's going back, it's got to be a couple years ago now from this government that talked about maximi maximizing revenue generation through the school system. But the school system isn't a revenue generator. The school system is investment in kids' futures, right? Um, but it seems to me that, that, that the whole online uh, push is about the creeping privatization of Ontario's uh, publicly funded education system. Um, it's a way to sell off bits and pieces. This, this now, this, this intention to create a standalone infrastructure through TVO uh, to, to provide uh, access to online learning, to me is a piece that they're building that they can then sell off to private interests who will, who will profit from it. And that perverts the purpose of, of education. That's, you know, that, that's not what education is for. And, and, and it, it just, um, it, it starts to bend it in the wrong directions. The wrong considerations start to, to uh, come into play. Um, and so, so the, you know, to me, this is this ideologically driven in the face of all the evidence about what's good for kids. And also, I mean, is it time to be going forward with something like this? I mean, it's just, we, you mentioned it uh, many times yourself, you know, the, the government is reacting, not necessarily being proactive. Um, you know, is it really time to, you know, quote unquote, shake things up in terms of education? It, it just, it seems, you know, the, the government is, is a, literally of two minds of, of what's going on, a, a mind that is reactive and a mind that is ignoring the situation to proceed with 
ideologically based changes. I mean, and that's just sort of my opinion too, but that, that does how it's, it sort of feels right now. Yeah, I can tell you, um, you know, shaking things up at this point when kids and educators are well thoroughly shaken right now um, is exactly the opposite. We need stability, we need calm, um, and we need support. And, uh, and this, is, this is not the time. But you know what? I mean, it's, it's a classic, um, you know, I don't want to get uh, pedantic here, but it's a classic <laughs> move. This is, this is um, you know, what's been referred to as disaster capitalism. It is, it never let just go, uh, you know, uh, go to waste uh, is, is the approach that's been taken before. And, you know, we've, we've seen it in the U.S. after Hurricane Katrina when they used that as an excuse to, uh, to turn all the schools down there into, into uh, you know, charters and vouchers uh, systems, privatize the system. Um, I think that they are trying to not less, let this crisis go to waste and they want to use it to pursue ideological ends like, like you know, privatization of the public system. And that, you know, who, who wins from that? Only the profiteers. Students don't. Um, certainly students who are already marginalized lose more under those circumstances. It's, it's deeply worrying. And, and I think people need to keep an eye out for that. Looking to sort of like immediate needs. Um, I want to magically make you the minister of education for a minute and uh, using all your knowledge and your, your experience as a teacher, as a, as a leader of the teachers union, uh, what needs to be done right this minute? What does uh, Harvey Bischoff, Minister of Education, do in this moment to get schools ready for the fall? Oh, that's a huge question. I'll, I'll, I'll take. I mean, look, there's there's the basic basic health and safety part of of it that that is it's just foundational, uh, and it means those things that we've talked about: improved ventilation, um, actually having an asymptomatic testing program in schools. It's it's hard to predict where we're going to be in September. I certainly can't, and I don't know if the epidemiologists can. Um, but we're in a race between vaccination and and variants right now, and that's you know uh, and. So that can, you know, that that gives me some concern uh, about what things look like. But, you know, this government created an asymptomatic testing program that they repeatedly touted, and it turned out that um, it was a disaster. It was a dismal failure. It didn't come close to the numbers that they were that they were meant to hit um, on a weekly on a weekly basis. So we need to deal with with basic health and safety. I would pull together a table of experts. I, I would need to hear, because I mean, I, I have, you know, I have experience as a classroom educator and, and um, in this role, um, but I'm certainly not a pediatrician. Um, and so what, what are the pediatricians saying, right? They will have specific advice about what we need to, to do to pick uh, kids back up again. What are early childhood educators saying? Um, uh, and so I think that that table needs to be needs to be put together immediately so that we can begin to look at what are the remediations that that need to be put in place. But it starts from um, not underfunding the system, uh, which we've just seen from the Financial Accountability Office their their intention to to in in real terms strip money out of the system over the next. Uh, the next eight or nine years um, to uh, what what uh, the FAO was saying about a twelve billion dollar uh, loss over that that period of time. So you need to put resources into the system, and that means the kinds of supports that that students need from from teachers to uh, education assistants to the professional student service personnel, like like. Uh, you know, psychologists and psychometrists and speech and language pathologists and, and all of those 
kinds of supports that will help kids get back up to speed. Um, and uh, th those would be those would be my starting places. Well, it sounds like a good place to start, and uh, we hope someone out there listens. <laughs> we won't hold our breath, of course, will we, Harvey? <laughs> <laughs> we will not <laughs> well uh i appreciate all your time today and we were talking about it before we started recording but uh we should definitely say happy retirement to you and uh best of luck and uh, enjoy it it's been very well earned and uh we thank you for joining us on open sources today thanks uh thanks so much for having me i really enjoyed it so once again that was harvey bischoff uh retiring and uh, though it sounds like he's probably going to still be pretty political in his retirement years, it's, uh, he's been a thorn in the side for a long time, so he's earned it. Yeah, I think when you've been in that gig that long, you can't really un unpoliticize, depoliticize yourself. But uh, <laughs> say congratulations you... to him on his retirement. What a, what a year to retire. This, you know, yeah, I yeah, think yeah. retirements are probably up in the places where they can be this year, right? It's like, oh, <laughs> mm -hmm. I'm not going back. Yeah, <laughs> if if you can get out and get out now, mm. uh, good message to leave uh, the show with. So there it is. It's six o'clock, and we hope you like the show this week. And uh, if you want to stay connected to us, go to our website, opensourcesguelph.com, or on Facebook at Open Sources Newswire, and on Twitter at OS underscore Guelph. You can listen to this show again by downloading it from our website every Monday or at the Guelph Politicast channel on Podbean or through your favorite podcast app at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. I'm on Twitter and Instagram at Adam A. Donaldson, and you can check out my news and politics site at guelphpolitico.ca. And I'm Scotty Hertz on Facebook, Scotty Hertz on Twitter. And for all CFRU-related information, please check out our website, cfru.ca, that will fill you in and send you in all the different directions of where radio is going in 2021. No, so just <laughs> check it out. And, well, I mean, we may actually see CFRU again sometime in 2021, so stay tuned. Let's hope. And stay tuned for DJ Sounds Good to Me here at the top of the hour on CFRU 93.3 FM, CFRU.ca, Guelph Campus and Community Radio. That's it for us for now, but we will be back next Thursday at 5 p.m. for another edition of Open Sources, and we will see you then. Yeah.